gmail.com. The Light, 88.7 FM, WAGP Beaufort, Hilton Head Island, Savannah, a ministry of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, on the web at wagp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Study. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you happen to be a first-time listener, special welcome to you. And what do we do for the Bible line? Well, we take people's questions. And uh, it might be an issue in your personal life, a theological issue you're trying to understand and apply, maybe a challenge in your personal walk with Christ. If we can be of help, by God's grace, we'll do the best we can. Again, those numbers that were just given, 843-525-1859. That's the South Carolina Exchange, the 843 Exchange. Again, it's 525-1859. And if you call, we give, li- we give preference to live callers. And you can go on the air live, or if you prefer, you can dictate your question. People also email us questions at TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. And we're happy to receive those questions as well. So with that said, Walt, let's go ahead and we'll get started this morning. All right. Our first question comes from Sonia in Rinkin, Georgia. She says, hello, Dr. Brogan and Rick. I have a question regarding the rapture and the great tribulation. Will those of us who have been raptured on those tribula- and those tribulation saints be aware of what is happening on earth during that time period? A pastor once told me that in heaven we will not know what is happening on earth because we were promised that there will be no pain or sorrow in heaven. But it seems to me that there will be some events on earth that those in heaven will be aware of, such as the 24 elders which will watch the seals being opened. The tribulation saints will ask God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, before our blood will be avenged? Also, during the bowl judgments, there will be 30 minutes of silence in heaven. This seems to indicate to me that there will be, they will be aware of some events taking place on earth. Also, I wanted to ask what you think the Jewish people and Catholics will say happen to all of the true believers after the rapture. I think this would cause them to reevaluate their theology and repent. Thank you for your time. All right. So uh, let me go to kind of a central passage that I think is often abused to say that people who are in heaven are watching us down here on earth. And it's in... Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Of course, whenever you see the word therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? It's there in light of what he has just stated in the previous chapter. He has described some witnesses, a great cloud of witnesses. Who are these witnesses? Well, these witnesses are the people that he just described in chapter 11. These men and women of faith in the Old Testament who lived 
exceptional lives witnessing for the Lord by the kind of decisions they made, even to the point where it cost them their very lives. So the witnesses are not your grandmother and your parents and your brother or people that you know who've gone on and they're looking down from above, you know, cheering you on. It's actually the people in chapter 11. Remember the chapter and verse divisions are added almost a thousand years after the Bible has been written. And so uh, don't let those distract you, but they're there to help us to find our way around the word quickly. Uh, But remember, they are artificial. And if you don't acknowledge them, and of course the word therefore would cause you to immediately acknowledge them. So he's telling us to lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. Why? Because the faith of these men and women and the endurance that they exerted even to the point of death is a good example of how we run the race. And of course, uh, apart from Abraham and Moses and Rahab and Gideon and the few dozen people that he mentions, our aim is ultimately what's found in the next verse where he says, fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. So we can learn from them, but ultimately our focus is on the Lord. The other texts that people often use to say that we are aware if we're in heaven of what's happening on earth is the uh, parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16, where a rich man dies and he goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And Lazarus dies and he goes to Abraham's bosom or also called paradise, though that may be confusing because paradise continues today just in a different place in heaven today. Paradise was emptied out at the ascension. But Hades, unrighteous Sheol, continues to this day uh, where lost people go because Revelation 20 uh, tells us that uh, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, which will be the final resting place of all the lost. But the passage never says that the rich man who dies and goes to hell, not because, again, he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever, and Lazarus does not go to heaven because he's poor, but because he's rich in faith, Um, it never states that the rich man could see his brothers. He knew he had brothers, and so you have memory in hell, and he knew that his brothers were unbelievers. He knew they needed a a word of, uh, of revelation or illumination, from the preaching of the scripture, um, but he never sees them as such. So the other text that is often used, and you state a parallel one close to it, is Revelation 6 and verse 10, where you find the martyred tribulation saints asking, oh Lord, how much longer will it be before you, you know, bring about your justice? It does not mean that they are watching what is going on on earth, they're just recalling how they died as martyrs for the faith. When you come to Revelation chapter 8 in verse 1, it's an interesting passage uh, because in chapter 7, there's this incredible amount of praise going on in heaven. And then we read in eight one, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments are a little bit different. If you remember with the seal judgments, you can only see one seal at a time. It's a seven-sealed scroll, and each one is broken and then uncovered and revealed. 
when you break the seventh seal, you're able to see the seven trumpets. And in the seventh trumpet are contained seven bowls. And so what they are seeing when the seventh seal is broken, of course, he immediately goes when the seventh seal is broken to these angels who have seven trumpets. What you're able to see are the judgments that are about to take place. So it's not that they are watching us here on earth, but what they can see are the judgments that God is about to lay upon the whole earth. And it just kind of takes heaven's breath away. Because remember, the midpoint of the tribulation, the trigger, so to speak, that will open the seventh seal, and the chronology fits perfect in the Revelation with the Olivet Discourse, is the abomination of desolation. So as bad as the seal judgments are, they're still survivable. But when the Antichrist, and by the way, the seal judgments in uh, found in Revelation chapter um, 6 with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, perfectly parallel what you read in Matthew 24, 4 through 14. And so you have these different horses and these different judgments and these cosmic changes that Luke underscores, and then this gospel of the kingdom shall go to the whole world, and then the end shall come. Uh, that verse, of course, is in reference to the evangelization of the world, during the time of the Great Tribulation period. It will be fulfilled. Every tribe, tongue, and nation will be represented in heaven because every tribe, tongue, and nation, some individuals will be converted during the time of the Great Tribulation. It's designed not just to bring Israel to faith, but also to bring the Gentile nations to faith. And so the parallel is unmistakable. And then when you read Matthew twenty four fifteen where Jesus quotes not Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet, he simply reminds us that when that event takes place, what was spoken of by Daniel, the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist goes into the temple, proclaims himself falsely to be God, and then there's an act of idolatry that's committed wherein image is given breath, so to speak, and able to speak, when this demonic manifestation happens, Jesus said, then there will be great tribulation. So the very nature of the tribulation is like a rheostat that's being turned up and up and up and up. And again, the design is to bring people to repentance. And so then the worst part of the tribulation begins to unfold. And when the saints in heaven witness this, when they witness what's in the seven trumpets and in the seven bowls, there's 30 minutes of silence. It's just like they're in awe over God's holiness, over God's righteous judgment that he is going to begin to unfold upon the earth. So they're not watching what is happening on earth. There's nothing in Scripture that says there's, they're watching. In fact, it appears everything in Scripture would say the opposite if you're to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So the pastor that spoke to you that, yeah, there's no crying in heaven. They'd probably be weeping watching some of us, uh, but there's no crying in heaven. And, and so what, what we do know is what they can see, and they can see the judgments that are contained in the trumpet and in the bold judgments as they had witnessed the various seals that were being opened and the judgment that each seal contained. Fair question. Good question. Uh, let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859 for today's Bible line. Our next question is from Robin. 
She, she says, recently one of my sisters called and wanted to read to me Love Letters from God by Steve Eden. This set up some red flags as it sounded like Sarah Young's type of error. She mentioned to her sister that this was along the lines of channeling and warned her against it. But she is now wondering how you would have handled this if this was your own sister. Well, I think you handled it well. Um, you, you basically said, hey, look, um, what, you're, what this woman is doing. I've never read love letters from God, but if what you're saying is accurate, that it mimics what Sarah Young is doing in uh, her books, Jesus Calling, and, you know, the, the publisher who put that out have zero integrity. In fact, in the original uh, edition, which someone gave to me, they thought maybe I would enjoy it. All I had to do was read the introduction, and I actually wrote an article. It may still be at our website at searchthescriptures.org. I believe it is. I was so just appalled and disgusted that a so-called confessing pastor's wife, is her husband is uh, a pastor in the PCA, would write such an article. Well, you know, I don't know if it was my article, but my article made a lot of travel across the Internet, and I got just tons of response on it. Um, but with that said, they took out in the following edition, I don't know if it was the very next one or the third publishing, the introduction. Why? Because she really showed her colors in the methodology that she was using, which is antithetical to Scripture. You cannot add to the Bible. The canon of Scripture is complete. God is not giving new revelation. And when you have a Beth Moore or a Sarah Young or whoever this woman is who wrote love letters from God speaking in the first person, like God is directly communicating to them apart from the Word of God, that's what every cult is built upon. Every cult is built on some vision some book, some revelation beyond the 66 books of the Bible. And God warns against adding or subtracting to the Scripture. There was a time in the history of the early church when God made certain men and women direct conduits of, of revelation. So a woman might prophesy in church. A parallel today would be a woman standing up in the church not expounding the Scripture, because that's the role of men, pastors, but a woman standing up in church and uh, reading Scripture. That would be a current-day parallel. Why? Because the canon wasn't complete. They couldn't read yet. Well, what does Paul say on marriage? What does Paul say on this subject? What does the writer of the Hebrews think about uh, this action? And they couldn't say it because God hadn't written it yet. And so in the early, early church, the only scriptures they had was the Old Testament. But God began to write the scripture, and interestingly, the prophetic nature of the sign gifts dissolved. Uh, church history, the early church fathers record that it stopped. No one was speaking in tongues where someone interpreted. Why? Because that was like saying, thus saith the Lord. And so today, if you're trying to find the will of God, why would I need someone to speak in a tongue and someone to interpret? I wouldn't because God would direct me to Scripture. And if someone did that, if that could happen, then I'd have to say, well, is it true? How would I know? The only way I would know would be to go to the canon. The word canon means measuring stick or measuring rod from a Latin word. I would have to go to the canon. 
and I would have to see if it matched up. If it added to what the canon said or subtracted, then I would know it was false. So there's no need for that. Today, if a church is seeking the will of God, what do they do? They search the scriptures. They go to the scriptures, and they find out what God said. So this is very dangerous. It seems very spiritual, and people say, well, God spoke to me. Well, God can impress you with the truth and illumine the truth from the Word of God, but don't say that, like, God gave me this revelation because there's no new revelation given and if you think that makes you sound spiritual, it's just a form of spiritual arrogance and it's wickedness. And what Beth Moore and Sarah Young and these others have modeled before women and men who have adopted their thinking is very, very dangerous, antithetical to Scripture. And it sounded to me like you handled it very well. You might direct my, your sister if she wants to hear a message to it, uh, to the final words of the Revelation and I have an entire hour-long sermon where I deal with this issue, among others. Good question. Let's go to the next. If you have a question for today's Bible Line, 843-525-1859. Our next question comes from Jessica in Beaufort, South Carolina. What is the difference between spiritual warfare and trials designed to sanctify? How do I know which one I am in, and does it change how I should respond? Well, the passage that comes to mind would be the book of James. And so let me read what James says about trials and about temptations, because here's the bottom line. If you can discern the difference between a trial and a temptation, then you can discern the difference between what you call spiritual warfare and a trial, because the parallels are identical. Uh, He uh, says here in the opening of his letter Uh, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And so he doesn't say if you encounter various trials, but when, because they're part of the Christian life. Uh, Some come directly from the hand of God to shape us into the image of Christ. That's the point of Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for good. Uh, Why? So that we can be conformed to the image of his Son as verse 29 of Romans 8 underscores. And so he exhorts us that knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let, so this is our response, we have to decide what we're going to do at the trial. Are we going to grumble and complain? Or are we going to respond in faith that we have a sovereign God who's over all things? And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be teleos, or perfect. It means mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And then, of course, this verse that follows, it certainly could be used in seeking the will of God for your life, but contextually, it's dealing with asking God for wisdom in the, for, in the means of a trial. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Um, so again, very clearly, he's speaking about trials. Sometimes we're not sure the purpose of the trial, and we can ask God for wisdom. Lord, what are you trying to teach me? What do you want to accomplish in this? And God will help you. And then in verse 12, he says, blessed is a man who perseveres under trials. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And, of course, he's not speaking here about eternal life. He's not speaking here about earning salvation. Uh, He dismisses that 
false thought that a man can earn it in chapter 2. But nonetheless, he is speaking about rewards. And the person who perseveres under a trial, there's reward. And then the next verse says, it's an interesting verse, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, neither does God tempt anyone. Now, what's interesting is that the word for temptation that is found in verse 13 is the identical word for trial in verse 2, testing in verse 3. Uh, it's the identical word. In fact, if you were using the Old English, uh, it uses the word temptation all the way through the passage in the King James. And, of course, that was understood in the first century because the word temptation had a dual nuance. It could refer to some difficulty, some trial that comes upon your life, or it could refer to a solicitation to evil. As time unfolded, the word temptation primarily meant in English just a solicitation to evil. And so for that reason, uh, the newer translations uh, reflect that based on the context that what he is referring to in verse 13 when he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Then he says in verse 14, again, the same word for trials used throughout the chapter. Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So in Greek, and I should add in Hebrew, uh, the word for temptation and testing is identical. In the book of Genesis chapter 22 uh, it says that it came to pass, I'm just paraphrasing, after these things that Abram was tempted, that God tempted Abraham. That's what the Old English says. The New English would say God tested Abraham. Why? Because we know that God cannot lead anyone into sin. So when you think of a trial versus a temptation, when you think of a trial versus a spiritual battle, the parallels are identical. Trials are allowed by God for our good, where temptation is a direct attack from the evil one. It's a form of spiritual battle. A trial is designed to make you more like Christ, to, to chisel the character of Christ into our lives, whereas a temptation is designed to destroy our character, to bring us down, to tear us apart. One is designed for maturity, to cause us to stand. Uh, solicitations to evil, the spiritual battle that we face. It's not for maturity. It, it makes us miserable people. And it's designed not to cause us to stand, but to cause us to fall, to stumble, to bring us down. So all trials, all tests are designed to develop us. All temptations, all forms of spiritual battle are designed to destroy us. And so therein lies the difference between the two um, Jessica, who called in this question, might want to listen to the series that we're doing on the book of James, and in right now, I think it's unfolding in Search the Scriptures, right? Yes, sir. Correct. And uh, so um, you might want to listen to uh, chapter one. I think it would be very, very helpful to you. All right, we have a live caller, so let's go there. And if you're listening this morning, you have a question, the 843 exchange is 525-1859. Let's go to Alberto and Savannah. Alberto, good morning. You are live on the Bible line with Pastor Carl. Go ahead and ask your question. Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogy. My question is, um, related to you, I watched your video, but it's okay to be gay, right? 
And I was talking to this lady in a Presbyterian church, a friend of mine, and I was talking about the conversation about the homosexuality. And then she got, she said, she told me that that homosexuals can have a relationship with God. And I told them that's that's not possible because you, if you're practicing a lifestyle. And she said, well, God is love. Well, she, my understanding, she has a wrong, polluted understanding of God's love. If God's love. You, if God's love is, you will tell the person the truth, and they're compromising the truth. And they're not, apparently they don't understand God's holiness and God's justice. So she's basically got upset with me because she got a bunch of homosexual friends. But I, I know I apologize. I mean to offend her, but I try to explain to her that she's got a misunderstanding of God's love. So they're, basically they're polluting God's love. So what's your understanding of this? Yeah, no, it's a great, great question. I think you responded well, Alberto. Uh, people often do theology these days by experience, and maybe they have a brother or sister, a loved one, a close friend that now professes to be homosexual, and they don't want to think in terms of that individual being condemned to a place of eternal judgment. But we equally need to say that the heterosexual who is immoral, who is committing premarital sex or extramarital sex, who's living the lives of sensuality, maybe they are uh, trapped in pornography, many times are just people who don't know Christ. Look, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall, for no temptation is overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, he'll not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. So any of us have the capacity to commit any kind of sin. But when a person is born again, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. His old, The old has passed away, you might say the old lifestyle, so to speak, and a new has begun to unfold. A new lifestyle comes. So while the Christian life is not a life of perfection, it is a life of a new direction. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone says he doesn't sin, he's calling God a liar, First John chapter 1 affirms. But there's a new direction, and I think one of the words that you used was lifestyle. Uh, the New Testament word would be the word practice. And so Paul would say, for instance, to the Corinthians— Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then the next verse says, such were, past tense, some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Everything changed. And so many people in the Corinthian church, remember Corinth was a place that was covered over in sexual immorality. In fact, the word that the city was, uh, you know, dubbed by Corinth became a verb in the Greek language for sexual immorality. That's how bad this place was. And he makes it very clear that we're not to be deceived. And so I would maybe have opened up these two, three verses to your friend and to say, you know, it's possible to be deceived. You know what being deceived is, right, friend? It's when you think you're right, when you're wrong. 
That's the nature of deception. And so Paul warns, don't be deceived. And in this list are effeminate, uh, and it's a Greek word that doesn't refer simply to someone who has, you know, feminine characteristics, though very often in a homosexual lifestyle, the um, female partner, say, in a male relationship will manifest a lot of feminine characteristics. They will act like a girl. This is why, among other things, it's very important if you're raising young boys in your home to raise them as men, not to let them be girly. And it's important because until they're converted, especially in the day that we live in, if there's a young boy who becomes a teenager and he's very girly, what will happen is is he'll receive a certain amount of rejection by boys who are not girly. And he may turn this girliness on himself and think of himself as worthless, and Satan will use that as a means to tempt him into potential a homosexual lifestyle. Remember, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, but we need to be raising young men. And very often, I remember my wife and I, we were living in Durham, North Carolina in the 1980s, and there was a single mom there, and, you know, she had a young man in the home, and he needed some male models, and we knew it. So we included him uh, in many events, and that would be a great ministry to some people who are listening to me this morning. If you know of single mothers in the church and you need to be above reproach in how you uh, deal with single moms, But if they have young men in the home, to be a mentor, to invite that person to a men's wildlife supper, to invite that young man to a men's prayer breakfast, to reach out to that guy for a camp out that you're going to do with Trail Life, because he needs male role models. And if he's being raised in a home where there's not a dad, then that can be a potential problem. So when we're speaking about effeminate, it's actually the, the Greek word that refers to a passive partner in a homosexual relationship, or it could be used of a male prostitute. And so he's simply saying that people who live this way have zero inheritance in the kingdom of God. And if you think otherwise, dear friend, then you're deceived. And this is why it is a great horror what's happening in mainline denominations Uh, We're not surprised by the main lines where, you know, you have uh, groups, denominations that already have for 40 years denied the authority of the Bible. They may use the language of historic Christianity, but they use a different dictionary to define the terms. So when they refer to inspiration, they can mean one of about 10 different meanings. Maybe they mean the Bible's inspired like Shakespeare was inspired. Uh, or God just kind of inspires someone to write something, but not infallibly. And so even the term inerrancy, it's used corruptly by groups like the Cooperative Baptists that were, were founded on the premise that the Bible has error in it. I was at a conference the other day with... Um, Uh, Sermon Audio, which is one of the outlets that we use to broadcast our messages. And tens of thousands of downloads come through that organization every single day. It's remarkable. It's all around the world uh, where they take 
pastors, and they don't take anyone, but they have to take pastors that are doctrinally sound, and they broadcast their sermons through the sermon audio around the world. And one of the things that organization is doing is they're creating what they call the audio vault because they recognize that there is coming a day when a lot of the social network platforms will be very probably gone for Christians to use. So they're trying to create a platform by which they can broadcast Christian messages when those platforms like YouTube and uh, Facebook and all the rest are expunged for believers. Hey, look, we, we need to pray for the gospel to go out there is a woman by the name of Stacy Abrams who's a wicked woman. Let's just not mince terms here. She's a wicked woman. She stands up in a church blaspheming the living God, telling us that it's God's will for women to have a right to an abortion and to live a gay lifestyle. Well, she has proposed to the Biden administration that she become the next head of the FCC. Uh, the FCC is an organization that licensed this station, and every five years we have to renew our license. I think it's every five years. Rick would have to correct me on that. But, um, you know, the FCC will prohibit, I think, at time, at some time in the future, just like in Canada. You know there's no Christian broadcasting in the country of Canada. We have people every week who are live streaming net and who are watching the sermons at Community Bible Church on Sunday morning. They're downloading messages from Search the Scriptures because there's no Christian broadcasting in Canada. You say that could never happen in the United States. Mm. Well, if you make it a racial issue rather than a moral issue, then it could happen in the United States. And that's what's at stake right now. And so um, it's critically important that these people, like, you know, now we've got mainline evangelicals, so to speak, like the Presbyterian Church of America, who hosted the Revoice Conference, and Tim Keller, one of their so-called leaders, who wrote a commentary with Sam Alberry, who's in favor of same-sex-attracted Christianity. That's wicked, to say that you can be a good Christian And with limits, and I want to be careful here because a lot of children listen who are home educated to this message every Tuesday, Uh, but within certain limits, you can show affection as men if you have same-sex attraction feelings. That's evil. That's like saying it's okay for a heterosexual to lust after a woman. No, once someone is converted, if they're truly converted, these Issues need to be brought under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. And if someone doesn't have a willingness to bring these things under the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, then those individuals are probably not converted. So Tim Keller, I know people love to wave his flag. He is promoting evil right now in the United States. He is breaking down the safeguards, the moral safeguards of Scripture. He's attempting to by what he is doing. And so, again, we shouldn't be surprised when he says Genesis 1 and 2 is filled with error unless it's poetry. We shouldn't be surprised when in his book, Reason for God, he promotes theistic evolution. This is wickedness. This is against historical Christianity. And what is now coming in, you got a J.D. Greer in the president who followed him in the Southern Baptist Convention, 
acquiescing on homosexuality, you know, just making light of it instead of saying, hey, look, this is sin. This is sin, and if someone doesn't repent of it and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they're going to spend an eternity. And so he waffles on it. You can listen to his own explanation online. Just Google it, J.D. Greer, Homosexual Sermon, and you can judge for yourself. So fight the good fight, brother. Hang in there. Speak truth. Are people going to be offended? The truth is offensive to people. And very often what you will discover is these people who are in favor of some form of homosexuality, either in feelings or in actions, and saying it's okay, very often those are heterosexuals, and I'm speaking here about heterosexuals, who are guilty of a different kind of sin. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question is from James. Uh, He says, has Dr. Brogy done any research on Jonathan Kahn's book, uh, Return of the Gods? I haven't, but, you know, I'm not a big favor, a big fan of him because he's written some very controversial things in the past. It sells books, but I would have to, uh, I would have to read it before I can judge the book properly. But I'm not a fan of him because of other error that he's promoted in the past. And, you know, sometimes people can be sensational in order to sell books. And that's what people like to do. You can get very rich off of naive Christians. That's what Beth Moore did. She got very rich off of naive Christians. And when she first began to write and someone handed me one of her workbooks, I just began to scan through it and say, well, this is wrong. That's wrong. And she wasn't at the point back then when she was, you know, having these direct emails from heaven and text messages from God. She wasn't even at that point yet. And I said, no, there's too much error in here. I mean, we're just talking about basic error. You know, this this woman is not certainly accurate in handling the Word of God. And so, you know, what followed in the years to come was not surprising. All right, let's go to the next question. All right, our next question um, does not have a name, but I think I understand this right. Um, what does Pastor Carl think of Essenes? The Essenes? Yes, sir. Yeah, so the Essenes were a group of people who lived largely during the intertestament period. In fact, some think very possibly that John the Baptist was himself in the Essenes. Uh, They lived down in the area where John lived. John lived out in the wilderness, meaning the desert of that region uh, that we call the Dead Sea area. The Dead Sea is a very desolate place, uh, except that which has, of course, been irrigated. And the Israelis are just like masters on taking land that's totally unproductive and making it blossom and to grow food. Uh, They're just geniuses at that. In fact, in South Carolina, there's a friend of mine who actually in the 1970s went to Israel to learn some of their irrigation methods, and he brought it back to South Carolina and used it for peach farmers and uh, made the peach farmers in South Carolina rich. He's still alive. He's in his late 80s. The Essenes, nonetheless, um, were people, were men, Jewish men, who were opposed to the liberalism of many of the Jewish people who were running the temple uh, in that time frame. Some of them, I'm sure, will meet in heaven. Some of them... 
I'm sure we won't meet in heaven because they were nonetheless, some of them, trying to establish a righteousness of their own. But remember, Jewish people and Gentiles, for that matter, that you will meet in heaven from the Old Testament era will be there because of Jesus. They're just living on the other side of the cross. They're looking forward to what the Messiah, whose name they didn't even know yet because it wasn't revealed until that time frame when Mary conceives and the angel tells her and another angel, an unnamed angel, tells Joseph. Uh, So they didn't know that his name would be Yeshua or in uh, English, Jesus, but they knew Messiah was coming. Abel knew Messiah was coming. He preached about Jesus. The book of Hebrews tells us that along with Acts chapter 10 because all the prophets spoke of Christ and Abel was a prophet, something you don't learn in the Old Testament, but we learn from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. But the Essenes, one of the things we're very, very grateful to them for was their diligent copying of the Scriptures. And so they copied and copied the Scriptures with incredible accuracy. And then, of course, when the Romans were coming to, uh, you know, after them in the desert regions, they hid those scrolls in large clay pots And, of course, in 1949, there was a young shepherd boy who was out herding sheep. And you know how it is as a child, maybe even as an adult, you like to take a rock and see if you can hit something. And he was taking stones and seeing if he could, you know, knock them through the hole of that cave. And and one went through, and he heard something break. And he went in there, and he discovered the very first of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which they continued to uncover for the next 30-plus years. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls have produced a copy or a portion of a copy of every book of the Old Testament, um, with the exception of the book of Esther. So we have, in some, just a fragment of a book, and others, well, we have the complete Isaiah Scroll, the whole book of Isaiah. And the amazing thing is, is you see, prior to that, we had a copy that was done by the Masoretes in the 10th century. And now we have a copy that's written 200 years before Christ. And what was the difference? Well, five letters. Five letters. Uh, For instance, um, we spell the word Savior in American English, S-A-V-I-O-R, the English continue to spell it S-A-V-I-O-U-R. What's the difference? None, with the exception of one letter. Those were the kinds of differences that were between the uh, Masoretic copy and the book of Isaiah. What did that tell you? It tells you that God did what he promised. He preserved his word, and you'd expect that. And so these critics who say, well, you know, the Bible has been copied and translated so many times, we don't even have what God said, that's a statement of gross ignorance. And it's certainly a statement of gross ignorance when it comes to the New Testament writings, because we have over 25,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that date within 100 years after the Scripture was written. So God preserved his word. It's not an issue. And even pagans who are scholars on some level 
who are at least not willing to check their brains out, but are willing to intellectually and honestly ask, is the Bible been transmitted, transmitted accurately? They will say yes. Now, they may not agree with it and say that it's the Word of God, but they understand that the argument is not that it wasn't accurately transmitted. And this, by the way, was huge, like for the book of Daniel. Uh, I referenced earlier Daniel the prophet, not Daniel the historian. Why? Because Jesus called him a prophet. But you see, in liberal scholarship, they say Daniel was written about 200 A.D. after the fact by a man who used the name Daniel and called himself a prophet. Why do they say that? Because of the incredible, incredible nature of the prophecies that he writes, that they are so precise, they would say, well, no one could write the future before it happened. That's the nature of prophecy. I've been doing a, a series with a national Christian radio broadcast, and we're doing it on prophecy. And in fact, I think they played it a few times on Saturday night uh, when they take the special from the week. And, and he asked me, well, what's the definition of prophecy? And I said, it's history pre-written because only God knows the future. And that's why there's no prophecy in the Quran or the Vedas or the Upanishads or the Book of Mormon or any other religious book you can think of. And so giving us a copy of the book of Daniel was huge. Why? Because some of the prophecies in Daniel 11, there's over 100, like 136, if I remember, in the first half of Daniel 11, were precisely, specifically fulfilled. During the intertestament period, after that copy of the dates 200 years before Christ, uh, after that copy was written. And so the critics can no longer say, well, this is, you know, some late book written after the fact because of the hard work of the Essenes. So God used them for a good purpose. All right, let's go on to the next question. All right, our next question is from Marie in Savannah, Georgia. She says, hello, Dr. Brogy. Please comment on Bart Barber's latest interview on 60 Minutes. I am shocked at the responses he gave Anderson Cooper. Thank you. Well, he's uh, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't see the interview, so I can't comment on it. Uh, Most of 60 Minutes is uh, uh, protected, copyright, and they don't always even publish it all. But if you will send me a link on his interview, I would love to watch it, love to see what he had to say. Um, So um, send it to me, and I can respond. Just send it to the place that you wrote this question to, and I will watch it. Most of those segments are, what, 12, 15 minutes each. I haven't watched, honestly, uh, 60 minutes in years. I can't remember the last time I watched it. Um, My parents used to watch it every Sunday night when we were children growing up, and I would watch it with them, but I haven't seen it in at least a decade. Um, not because I'm opposed to it. I just I just don't. I'm usually doing something else on Sunday nights. There's too many other things to, to, to watch and to listen to. But if you'll send me that segment, I'll be happy to comment. Let's go to the next question. All right, our next question is from Carol, also in Beaufort, South Carolina. She says, what happens to believers when they die who have mortal bodies and are living, living in the millennial kingdom? Well, that's a that's a good question. So let me turn to Revelation chapter 20 for just a second, where we learn something about the resurrection program. Um, we read beginning here in uh, verse 
4, well, let me just back it up. It said, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that's Satan, as defined within this book called the Revelation, the serpent of old, who is the devil, so it tells us in Satan, these different names given to him and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and did not receive the mark on their forehead or on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until... The thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So even in this passage, you learn something about the nature of the first resurrection, that it's not first in terms of the number one in terms of sequence. It's first in terms of kind. So not so much in terms of time as kind. And Jesus speaks to this level in John 5, where he speaks of the time, or I should say the kind of resurrection, a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. And so when we think about the first resurrection, just like when we think of the first death, he's going to parallel the first death in a moment with the second death, where he says, blessed are holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection over those, uh, over these, the second death has no power. So just like the first death didn't happen all at once, but over the course of, you know, six, 7,000 years of time, even so, the first resurrection doesn't happen all at once. The first to be raised from the dead in a glorified, resurrected body, never to die again, of course, was the Lord Jesus. He was the first fruits of all creation. Then a small number of Old Testament saints. After that, the rapture of the church. They're also part of the first resurrection program. After the rapture, uh, sometime after when the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel, uh, he'll break it. And But when he signs that treaty, a seven-year period begins to unfold. At the end of that seven-year period, that's when Old Testament saints and tribulation saints, as we just read, are raised. And so, for instance, now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the the sons of your people will arise. Your people in the book of Daniel, of course, is meaning your Jewish people. And there will be a time of distress such as has never uh, occurred since there was a nation until that time. That sounds familiar, right? That sounds very parallel. In fact, Jesus almost directly quotes it in the Olivet Discourse in in Matthew chapter 24 in verse 21. There will be a time that has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake to everlasting life. So they're, again, part of the first resurrection program. So all the Old Testament saints are not caught up when the church is raptured. They're caught up when all of um, the Old Testament saints are raptured at the end of the seven-year period. 
and we just read that's when tribulation saints will be raised. And so during the next thousand years, people will who have survived the tribulation, one of the judgments that happens right before the millennial reign of the Messiah is all unbelievers are removed and they are cast into Hades awaiting the final great white throne judgment. And so only believers will be able to enter the kingdom. And that's true in every level, Uh, whether it's the eternal kingdom, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And that's certainly true of the millennial kingdom. There will be no unbelievers who will enter the millennial kingdom, only believers in the Lord Jesus. And those believers will enter in their natural body, Jew and Gentile alike. And what is clear from Isaiah chapter 65 is people live long extended periods of time, similar to that of the flood. Some would say there's no death during that time for millennial saints. I I would beg to differ. Uh, I think there is death during that time. Um, But it does say that you won't see death on the same level. Uh, Infant death will be virtually unknown. And if a man lives only to be 100 years old, he'll consider it cursed. But he'll live a long period of time, and he'll be able to have children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren. And those uh, offspring will have to make decisions for Christ, just like your offspring today has to make a decision for Christ. You may be a child of God, but doesn't automatically mean your children are. God has children. He has no grandchildren. And interestingly, at the end of the thousand years, it says in the next verse, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth. Who is he speaking of? He's speaking of the offspring of tribulation saints who didn't come to faith. You'd say, how can that be? Jesus will be literally ruling on the earth and with a rod of iron. Why will he have to rule with a rod of iron? Because some of the offspring of tribulation saints, will not yield to the Lord Jesus. And look, people didn't always yield to him when he was here the first time. Though he walked on the earth, did incredible miracles, and some wanted to attribute his miracles to the devil. And there will be people during the millennial reign of the Messiah when the whole earth is repopulated who won't give their lives to Christ. And that's why at the end of the thousand years and Satan is released, he will try to draw out the unbelievers to go against the Lord Jesus. And, of course, at that point, God will put that down immediately. He'll throw Satan into the lake of fire. And so then I saw a great white throne. And who is present at the great white throne? Clearly, in Revelation 20, 11 through 15, only unbelievers. You say, well, what happens if a millennial saint for whatever reason, dies during the millennial reign of Messiah. Well, the scripture doesn't say, but I think it's fair to assume that that person is raised up uh, at this point, at the end of the millennial reign.